Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> I know that is starting to sound like a joke around here, but turn to Genesis chapter 1. And just like Gerald said, tonight is uh, the first of a six-part vision series. I don't know why, but for me, September always feels like the beginning of the year, way more than January. Maybe it's because we have so many college students. Maybe it's because the sun is about to disappear for the next 11 months and your skin turned translucent. Um, maybe it's because good fashion is about to re-enter the picture. I, I don't know. I have n yes, I'm a fan of fall myself. But for whatever reason, um, fall always feels to me like the beginning of the year. So we thought we would start it off um, for the next six weeks my job basically, and tonight in particular, is to lay out the vision for the coming year, for where we feel Jesus is calling this church to step out. I speak for the elders of the church this evening, and uh, I forewarn you, there's a ton of stuff that is brewing in my heart that I'm about to unleash on you, okay? So this is going to take a long time. By a long time, I mean upwards of an hour, okay? You're thinking, what's different? Well, nothing for the eight. Stay with me and a ton of ground to cover. Here's the roadmap. Tonight is vision day, and then next week is day one of seven. The plan is to talk about prayer for the city. What does it mean to be a church for the city? The week after that, my buddy Jeff Vanderstelt is in town from Tacoma. And then the last three weeks are on the three core identities that shape the three moving parts of a missional community, mission, family, and obviously discipleship to Jesus. So that's the roadmap. Um, on that note, before we get to work, you should have in your lap a missional community, a handout. Do you have that from the front door? Take that out right now. It's a missional community commitments and primer. The plan is for you over the next six weeks to go through this with your missional community at your weekly family meal. And uh, if you're in a missional community that does not meet weekly, uh, weekly, but rather every other week, that's fine. All we ask is that for the next six weeks, when you get together at whatever your night is, mine is Wednesday night, we get together, rain or shine, every single Wednesday night, and we eat and drink and pray and hang out. And if that's you, whatever your night is, Wednesday or Tuesday or Thursday or Saturday morning, get together with your community for the next six weeks. And after you share a meal, work through the questions one at a time. It should take you about 45 minutes to an hour max. Um, now, at the hope and prayer is that by the end of the six weeks, you come up with the Holy Spirit and your community, you come up with a plan for the coming year of how you are called to live. All of that's in the back if you flip over later on to the commitments. The plan is for you to fill all of that out over the next six weeks and then eight weeks from today on November 10th to stand you up in your missional community and have you nail your commitments to the wall or something dramatic, I'm not sure what yet, and pray over you and turn you over to the Holy Spirit for the coming year between now and next summer. Now, if you're not in a missional community, which is a few of you, <laughs> to say the least, if you're not in one yet, but you know a few people that you're thinking about starting one with, friends or family or people in your apartment complex or your dorm or your condo tower or your neighborhood, then get together with them even if it's not official, get together with them for the next six weeks, share a meal, work through the primer. If you're not in a missional community and you're nowhere close, you think it sounds like a cult and you're not really sure what you think, all right? That's fine. Get with your friends, your spouse, your family if you're married, your roommates, random people who know Jesus and are sitting by you. I don't care. But get with other Jesus people and work through this at a coffee shop, set a time every week at a coffee shop or a pub or whatever to work through this for the next six weeks. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. How about we start off with a little bit of theology? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind or humanity in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, listen, first words out of God's mouth, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 
Human, in the story, is created to rule, meaning to partner with God in taking the world forward. How? Well, we read three things. First, God says, be fruitful. That's Bible speak for have sex with your spouse. The Bible is seriously awesome. Then, (laughs) you're thinking, I'm not married yet. Well, enough said. Then, God says, increase in number. That can be translated multiply, meaning make babies, a lot of babies. And then, God says, fill the earth meaning spread out, make more men and more women and more children and spread out all over the planet, fill the earth up with life, all in order to rule over the creation. This is called a theology of multiplication. Embedded into our humanness, into our DNA from the beginning, is an innate urge to multiply. You all know that. Healthy plants and trees make more plants and trees. Healthy animals and birds and fish make more animals and birds and fish. And healthy humans make more humans. That's why it's so devastating when a couple can't have kids. It's it's gut-wrenching because you know deep down that, that there's a calling on you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Or at least that was the idea early on. But you know the story. Adam and Eve, Adam is the proto-human, right? Adam and Eve are put in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. But not only that, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to spread mankind out over the planet and with it to spread the garden out over the planet. But does that happen? It's not a trick question. Does that happen? No, not exactly because of what? Yeah, the fall, because of sin, everything is off track and out of whack. Now, turn over to chapter 11. In between chapter 3, which is the sin kind of story of the fall, and chapter 11, mankind does spread out, but so does sin. This is a fascinating story, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and a common speech, As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. Interesting. The people moved eastward. Okay, we're off to a good start. Remember, fill the earth. But then they found a plain in Shinar, which is a name for Babylon, an ancient Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. Now, in the ancient world, this was a rich and fertile place, easy, comfortable Remember, this is four, five, six thousand BC. If you're building a city from scratch, you want to start off on a plain. Even in the modern world, you don't build, for the most part, a city on a mountain or in a jungle or in a desert. You build it in a plain or in a valley where it's a nice spot. And we read that. They found a plain and then, listen, they settled there. Now, if you're reading through Genesis from left to right, you get to that line, they settled there, and your heart goes, no, no, not that, seriously, don't stop, because they are called to spread out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but instead they found a plain where it's easy, where it's comfortable, and they settled there. Not only that, but they said to each other, three, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar, meaning they come up with a brand new technology, the brick. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens or that reaches to God. We have the brick. Now let's make a city. Let's make a wall. In fact, let's make a tower to God so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, and here's the fear and insecurity, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, um, this word scattered is used all over the first part of Genesis in a positive light. Scattered is a good thing. It's what happens when you and I do what we were supposed to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, scatter. But here it's used in a negative light, not by God, not by the author, but by the people. Otherwise, we will be scattered. And listen, so, so not only is this hubris and pride so that we may make a name for ourselves, But on top of that, it's men and women fighting God. Now watch what happens. Five, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. That, by the way, is ancient sarcasm. Okay, God, the creator, is a tower to God, has to come down to see the tower. Oh, wow, nice little bitty tower. This is sarcasm kind of 
in a 6,000 BC kind of way. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them, notice, from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there the Lord, there it is again, scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Notice the language of scattered is used not once, not twice, but three times, driving the point home. So, to recap, they were supposed to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, go all over the place. But because of sin, instead they stopped. And they settled in the plain of Shinar and they stayed in one place. And as a result, God scattered them. Now, with all of that in your mind, turn over to the New Testament. I want you to see this pattern play out in the life and story of the church. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. Um, It's the first book or writing in the New Testament. Matthew 28, skip down to the end, 18. It's a well-known line. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, meaning I'm king of the world, not only that, but of the universe. Therefore, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. Say that out loud with me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And guess what? I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, lots of scholars talk about how this is a rewording of Genesis chapter 1. This is Jesus, at the end of his life, rewording what in theology is called the cultural mandate in Genesis 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he's rewording that in light of sin, for starters, and in light of his death and resurrection, saying, listen, All of that still stands. Yep, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. But now on top of that, because we are all out of whack with God the creator, on top of that, you are called to make disciples. So make babies, yes, and make disciples of all nations. This command is called the Great Commission, the majority of you know. But what you may or may not know is that there are actually four Great Commissions in the New Testament, one in each gospel. Matthew's is right here, go and make disciples. Mark's ending is lost, we think, but the one we have right now is go into all creation and preach the gospel. Luke's is actually in Acts 1. Turn there, to the right, to Acts 1. If you're new to the New Testament or to the Bible as a whole, um, Luke and Acts were both written by the exact same author, a, a first century physician named Luke. And uh, there's a book in between called John, which is confusing right now, the way my Bible is put together. But think of Luke-Acts as a two-part series. And the closing Jesus story in Luke's writing is actually in Acts 1. Skip down to chapter 1, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a valid, legitimate question. He said to them, it's not for you to know, (laughs) the punk, the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then listen to this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you shall be my witnesses is Luke's way of saying or rewording, go and make disciples. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And that, by the way, is a table of contents for the book of Acts. First you read about the gospel in Jerusalem, then the gospel in Judea, then the gospel in Samaria, and then by the end of the book, you read about Paul in Rome. Now, watch what happens for starters. Let's read about the Jerusalem piece. Turn the page to chapter 2, skip down to the end, verse 38. Peter goes to Jerusalem along with the church, along with the disciples, and there Peter is in front of the entire city preaching the gospel or the good news that Jesus is king, death, resurrection. And then we read this. Peter replied, repent, 
Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about how many people? 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Can you imagine? The church goes from 120-ish in Mary's living room to well over 3,000 in a day. This is the original megachurch right here. Now, we're going to talk a ton about large church versus small church in the coming weeks and pros and cons of each. But know that this right here is no longer a small church. It's large to say the least. And on top of that, it's healthy. Keep reading, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay, so there's justice and generosity and all that. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, thousands of people. But they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, what we call missional community or family, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Man, this is not only a large church and a growing church, but it's healthy and it's thriving. Now let's read another example or glimpse here and there of this Jerusalem church. Turn the page to chapter 4. Skip down to verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace, one of my favorite lines in the New Testament. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. Turn the page to chapter 5. Skip down to verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That was an open air courtyard in the temple for thousands of people. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Turn the page, chapter 6. Skip down to verse 7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, this is fantastic. Priests um, in the ancient world, at least in Israel, were the culture shapers of the day, the social elite. And it was priests who killed Jesus, who were anti-Jesus of Nazareth. But now, not that long after, a large number, not one or two or three, but a large number of priests, of culture shapers are coming to faith in Jesus of Nazareth. And this church is off the charts. It's growing. Who knows how large it is by chapter six. This is years later. Maybe 5,000, maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 50. We have no clue. But this is a large, healthy, thriving, growing church. There's just one problem. Where is it? Where is it? Jerusalem. Where were they supposed to go? To Jerusalem, but then where? Judea, and then where? Samaria, and then where? To the ends of the earth. Are they doing that? Nope. Now the church is fantastic. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Priests are coming to faith in Jesus. But they're not going. Until chapter 8. Turn the page. One more text. Turn the page. In between chapter 6 and chapter 8, Peter is the first man and the, the first martyr who is put to death for faith in Jesus, and that is the turning point in the Jerusalem story. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles, now pay close attention to the language, were scattered throughout where? 
Judea and Samaria, interesting, where they were supposed to go all along. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. But those who had been, and here it is again, scattered, preached the word or the message about Jesus and his kingdom wherever they went. They went to Antioch, they preached the message about Jesus in Antioch. They went to Capernaum, they preached the message about Jesus in Capernaum. Philip, one of the leaders, went down to a city in where? Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, notice the language. Not once, but twice we read that they were scattered. Does that language ring a bell to you? You should be thinking Genesis 11 right now. There is no doubt in my mind that Luke wants you to read Babel into this story. The church is scattered. Interesting, it's the people first and then the leaders follow, which is the exact opposite of how I think about church planting. Right? I think you start with the church planner, with the leadership team, and then you, get, then you call people to it. It was the exact opposite. The people would go out and plant a church and then say, hey, Peter, we need a pastor. Come on. Seriously, you read that all through Acts. The people were the first ones on the ground. Not The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. You're idiots. <laughs> Seriously. Guys with my job stayed in Jerusalem. It was the people who were first on the ground. And as a result, the gospel goes to Judea, then to Samaria. Then if you keep reading to the right, it goes to Saul on the road to Damascus, up in Syria to the northwest, and then to Joppa over on the northeast. And then the jump is made to the Gentiles in Capernaum, then way up north to Antioch, an influential city in the ancient world. And then from there, Paul and Barnabas spread out over the entire Mediterranean. And by the last chapter of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome, right under Caesar's nose. If you're a first century Jew, that is to the ends of the earth, all because they were scattered. So to recap, we see this pattern play out through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. Even in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, even with the Spirit, even in the church, we see this pattern play out. The disciples were supposed to go Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, make disciples, all nations. But instead, I would argue because of sin, and that is implicit in the text. It's not explicit. I could be wrong. It doesn't happen very often, but I could be wrong. But I would, either way, I know they were supposed to go. I would argue because of sin, they stopped. They settled in Jerusalem. And I don't blame them. No doubt Jerusalem was fantastic. I'm sure the kids' ministry at the temple was off the charts. I mean, Solomon's colonnade, this is architecture from Herod. This is absolutely beautiful. Peter is up front teaching every Sunday night. I mean, seriously, he was with Jesus, and he's rough and rowdy, but he's passionate. And if you're not into Peter, if you're a bit more sophisticated and intellectual, we have John, the Greek orator, who's up every other Sunday night. I mean, the disciples of Jesus are there. You're in Jerusalem. This is God's city. You're at the temple. There are people all over the place. It's healthy. It's thriving. Why would you want to go to Judea? It's not an urban center. Why would you want to go to Samaria? There's racism between Jews and Samaritans. And why in the world would you want to go to the ends of the earth, to Rome, where you would end up in prison or beat to a pulp or worse, dead on a cross just like your Messiah? So as a result, they were scattered. Now, I want to ask the question, what does this mean for you and me first? Then what does this mean for missional communities? And then what does this mean for the church as a whole? This should take a few hours. Stay with me. First off, what does this mean for you and me? Every day, we face the decision to settle or to scatter. To settle in the plain of Shinar. You all know how tempting the plain of Shinar can be. Don't leave, really, seriously. <laughs> I'm sorry. Not really, but I should be. We face that decision every day to settle for an easy life, for a comfortable life, for safety, for security, for Portland hedonism, of which I'm a fan, or to scatter, to be fruitful and multiply, or in the language of Jesus, to go and make disciples. 
I love that line, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They went to Antioch, they preached the word there. They went to St. John's, they preached the word there. They went to the Pearl District, they preached the word there. They went to UAP, they preached the word there. Wherever they were. And it's interesting to me that they were scattered by persecution. Fascinating. When you read that in context, it's almost like God, for whatever reason, allows them to be persecuted in order to help them do what they were supposed to do all along. Now, don't misunderstand me. Listen carefully. Okay, you all know I don't have a Calvinistic bone in my body. I'm not saying that persecution was God's plan or God's will. All I'm saying is that I wonder if at times God allows persecution, not so much in America, but around the world, or hardship, or pain, or stuff that's not his heart, not his plan, not his will, stuff that he's flat out against. I wonder if sometimes God allows it because you and I have stopped and we've settled and we're not going. We're not making disciples. We're going out to brunch. And I'm all for that. But you know what I mean. We've settled. And so I wonder if sometimes instead God allows stuff to push, to pull, to drag, to kick you and me out. And it's a shakeup at first and it's scary and it's dangerous and what? But in the end, there you are and God is at work. God, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. God is willing to sacrifice our comfort for our good. Just like a father, the majority of you are not moms and dads yet. I am. And I am more than willing to sacrifice my son's good, my son's comfort for my good or for his good. Especially for my good, but that's because I'm not God. God is more than willing. All that to say, think about your life. Don't settle in the plain of Shinar, so to speak. Now, I'm not saying you need to move. Okay, this is Portland. We are the ends of the earth, just to clarify. We are literally on the other side of the world from Jerusalem, okay? But there are hundreds of thousands of men and women here who are not yet disciples of Jesus. And the odds are that God is not calling you to move. The odds are that God is calling you to wake up and to live right where you actually call home. And to not settle, but to scatter. And I know that's hard, but the best things in life are hard, but they're good. Now, secondly... What does this mean for missional communities? We talk a lot around here about the gathering and the scattering, kind of that, um, that rhythm, about the gathering on the weekend around the bread and the cup of teaching and worship and prayer and the spirit of God, and we're all for that. And we also talk about the scattering all week long in neighborhoods all over the city, in missional communities where you live out the gospel 24-7. And we talk about how it's a both and, how lots of people pick one or the other and how dangerous that is. Because if all you do is pick, I'm a gathering person or no, I'm a scattering person, then what you end up with is a flat, one-dimensional, shallow, anemic expression of church. And you end up missing out. If all you know of church is an hour and a half on a Sunday night, and I'm all for that, but my goodness, you have no clue what you're missing. So we talk a lot about kind of the both and, and how for too long, the American church, in particular, the American West Coast megachurch, has been defined by the gathering alone. When people say, oh, I love that church, usually what people mean, if you kind of ask around, usually what people mean is, I love that hour and a half experience on Sunday which is part of that church, but it is not the sum. Now, there are two problems with that. It's actually way more, but to the cynic in me, there are two that jump to the top of the list. The first is a church problem. The problem with that way of, of thinking about church, all gathering and nothing else, is that it puts the work of the church into the hands of a select few, for the most part, paid staff. And that is a serious problem. By the end of tonight, there will have been, what, 10 people max on stage? There are hundreds and hundreds of you out here. That's what, one, two, three percent of you? That is a serious problem. The second problem, though, is not a church problem as much as a gospel problem. We live in the Pacific Northwest. On top of that, we live in Portland, Oregon. On top of that, we're in the city of Portland, Oregon. People in the city don't care about church at all. Gone are the days 
not that long ago, when, you know, if, if you could put on a great weekend gathering and you would not talk that long, <laughs> I would never do well in that, but you would not talk that long and parking was convenient and the children's ministry was fantastic and the coffee was free and you had a sermon series and whatever, people would show up by the hundreds and by the hundreds. That's over. Maybe in the South, maybe in a suburban context, but no longer, not in the Pacific Northwest. We're 10 or 20 years behind Europe and 10 or 20 years, sadly, the odds are ahead of the U.S. as a whole. And people just flat out don't care. You know this. I think about my neighborhood, right? My neighbors don't care. They think of church as organized religion. They don't want to come to the gathering. They want to come over to my house for brunch, for a barbecue, for coffee. They want to go out. But they, they don't want to come. The city doesn't want to come to church anymore. What does that mean? That means we actually have to do what we were supposed to do all along. We have to take the church to the city. Either, this is what has to happen for the church to go forward. And when I say has to happen, I mean has to happen. One, we have to take the church out of the hands of the paid staff and put it back into the hands of the people. We have to take it off of the stage and put it into day-to-day -day life seven days a week. That has to happen going forward. And secondly, we have to take the church to the city. More than anything, the gospel to the city. If that does not happen, then we will go the way of France and Germany and Scotland. We will slowly but surely die off. Churches never die fast. You know that. We die, and we die slowly but surely and we will die. Or we will adapt and change our methodology, for lack of a better word, to line up with Jesus, go and make disciples. That is the future. The church, the church of the future will not be defined by a select few on stage for an hour and a half every weekend, but by all the people of God living out the gospel in neighborhoods all over the city all week long. That is the future. Now, at this church, every church is different. At this church, that happens in and through missional communities. That's our method. As much as we hate the word method, I prefer the word form, which basically means method. Um, <laughs> and all churches have methods, like it or not, right? When a church says, we don't have a method, we just teach the Bible. That's baloney. That's your method, right? Your method to make disciples is teach the Bible Sunday morning, and then again Sunday night, and then again Wednesday night, and then have a men's Bible study Thursday morning, and a women's Bible study Friday afternoon, and a youth group Bible study Tuesday night. That's how you think in your mind that you make disciples. Fine, well done. That's your method. Be honest about it. Our method is gathering and scattering, gathering on the weekend and then scattering in missional communities. But listen to me, all a missional community is, is people following Jesus together in a neighborhood. That's all it is. The label is new, the terminology is new and cheesy in my opinion, but the idea is not new at all. Think about it, let's talk about community. Your family, your brothers, your sisters, you're adopted into the family of God, treat one another that way. Love one another, forgive one another, stay faithful to each other, celebrate together, grieve together. If one of you doesn't have enough stuff or money or whatever, and another of you has extra, share, be generous, do justice, help each other out. If one of you is off, call each other out, but be nice about it, okay? If one of you is down or discouraged or depressed, help, encourage, bless, do life together, love one another, all, is any of that a new idea? <laughs> Let me rephrase the question. Have you read the New Testament? Like, no, none of that is a new idea at all. Okay, let's talk about the missional piece. The gospel of Jesus is front and center. Here's the gospel. Jesus is king of the world and of the universe. His kingdom or his life-giving, healing, saving rule and reign of the creator, God over the creation. It's breaking in. It's here and it's coming. It's now and it's not yet. You can be a part of it. There is coming a day on the horizon when Jesus is going to judge all of humanity. That's good news. That's bad news. Get right with God. And in doing so, he's going to make everything right and usher in a brand new world free from evil and justice and you can be a part of it through Jesus' death and resurrection and faith. Put your trust in him and you can be made right with God and step into his kingdom now in the Holy Spirit and the church and in the future at the renewal of all things. And in the meantime, partner with Jesus. Get at the work of redemption. Go, make disciples. Tell your family, your friends, everybody you know that Jesus is king and he's good and you can be a part of it. Love your city. Serve your 
your city, bless your city, do justice in your neighborhood, take care in particular of the vulnerable and the fatherless and those who don't have enough money to pay the bills and live as a gospel presence to where everybody in your city knows about Jesus. Is any of that a new idea? You're thinking, dude, I'm bored. Exactly. None of that is a new idea at all. The, new, the label is new, the idea is not at all. Now, yes, we are going to ask you to stand up eight weeks from now and make a commitment, not to your missional community, but a commitment to Jesus with your missional community for the next 12 months. And yes, I'm well aware of the fact that commitment is a dirty word if you're under the age of 40 and you're on the West Coast. I get that. You know, I, I think I should say it at a whisper. You know how Christians think that if you whisper a cuss word, it doesn't really count? You know, we're going to make commitments in eight weeks or whatever, which is so dumb. If you're going to sin and be immature, sin and be immature, all right, on purpose. Come on, own it. But seriously, that's a dirty word. I think I would get in less trouble for cussing on stage than I would for using the word commitment with hundreds of people who are 20-something. And that's why we said, yeah, let's land on that word commitment. Because it is so not my generation. It is so not West Coast. It is so not church at all. That's the word, commitment. We're going to ask you to make a commitment to Jesus, not alone, with your community, not to what I tell you to do, but what you think Jesus' spirit is stirring up in you, in your community, in your neighborhood, or wherever it is that you're called, if it's to foster care or whatever, something broad, that's fine, that's fantastic. We're going to ask you to stand up and make a commitment. But know that up front, for us, this is not about a methodology. This is about following Jesus. And missional communities are, and I'm unapologetic about this, and I'm over the top excited about this, missional communities are the vision for this church. Now, when I say that, I mean you living out the gospel in your neighborhood is the vision for this church. When we, myself and the leadership, when we dream about the future, we don't dream about a state-of-the-art building with 3,000 seats and air conditioning and theater seating and, although if you're a billionaire, please hook your church up, okay? (laughs) Real estate is dang expensive in this city and we're young Portlanders. We don't have any money, okay? Or at least start tithing. I'm fine with that. But we don't dream about that. We don't dream about a video podcast in HD and me with my own personal makeup artist and a worldwide social media, like that's in a radio voice. Like we don't, (laughs) what's what's up with that? I'm not sure, it's 8 p.m., sorry. Um, We don't dream about that. We don't dream about a program for this, that, or the other. We dream about you, not alone here, and then you go back to life all week long, but we dream about you and a family of brothers and sisters, 20, 30 people, or however many, that you love just as much, if not more so, than your biological family. Some of you are thinking, that's not hard at all. It's a whole other teaching. But that you love, that you do life with, and you with your community waking up in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, wherever it is that you live or you're called, and dreaming about making disciples about a kingdom presence in your part of the city. That is what we dream about. You know, this church is three and a half-ish years old. The church as a whole um, is nine and a half. Started on the west side, nine and a half years old. I actually started six months before um, for 800 bucks a month, if that counts. Um, And so last Sunday was my 10-year anniversary of working here, which for me, I'm a young guy, that was a milestone for me. I've never done anything for 10 years straight other than be awkward and lame, okay? So that was a milestone for me, you know, and uh, I, was, I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible, and I was grateful for God's faithfulness, but all week long I had been kind of pensive and kind of thinking about my past and my future and a decade down, another one or two or three or however many to go in this city, and uh, the more I'm at this, because I've been at it for a little while now, 10 years, the more that the weekly gathering, of which I love, is just not enough for me. I love it. I love teaching. I love the scriptures. I love worship. I love prayer. I love you. But I'm not willing to give the rest of my life to sermons and songs and nothing else. I don't think that Jesus died to put on a church service. I think he died and rose from the grave to usher in the kingdom of God. And that is what I'm willing to give my life to. What are you willing to give your life to? We are unapologetic about the fact that our dream, our vision for the future is you 
following Jesus in your neighborhood or wherever it is that God's called you to go. Now, third, what does this mean for the church as a whole? Um, Well, we think two things. First off, we can't stay in one place where it's easy, where it's comfortable, huddle up, settle down in the plain of Shinar, make a name for ourselves in Jerusalem where it's nice and it's easy. We have to be fruitful and multiply. We have to go and make disciples. So more than ever, we feel called to church planning, which I hope you're on board with. I think you are. Um, There's a weird dichotomy that we wrestle with as leaders, and not only as leaders, that you wrestle with. On one hand, the end goal is for thousands and thousands of people to come to faith in Jesus. So in Portland, as of the last census a year ago, there were 593,820 people. That's a lot of people. And then there's well over 2 million in the greater Portland region as a whole. So I want a church of 593,820 people. Right? I don't mean our church per se, but the church, capital C. That's what I want. But on the other hand, it's really, really hard to keep a large church healthy. Would you agree? Now, I'm well aware, this is a bit of a taboo subject, but I'm well aware of the fact that the majority of people prefer smaller churches. If I were to take a poll, and please do not put your hand up right now, but if I were to take a poll and ask how many of you like the church, maybe you even love the church, I'm not sure, but if you had your pick, you wish it were a little bit smaller. My guess is that number would be north of 80% of you would say, yeah, like it, maybe even love, but I wish it was a little bit smaller. Guess what? That's okay. There are basically two types of people that like large churches. One is pastors because our identity is tied to our work and our image and what other people think of us rather than Jesus' work and the fact that we're created in God's image and the fact that we have been adopted into God's family. We're sons, we're daughters, and we're loved just the way we are. But because we're idiots, we don't get that very well. And so we think that if we have a large church, that somehow validates us. And if we have a small church, we think that somehow does the exact opposite. We get discouraged and sad. And where are you, God? And it's baloney. The other type of people that like large churches are people who like to hide. For whatever reason. Maybe it's consumerism. You you, want to take but not give. You want to sit in the back and have your spiritual consumer time. Maybe it's sin. Maybe you're under church discipline at another church and you're literally in hiding. We will find you, by the way. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's because you're hurt and you're healing and it's, and it's right for you for a time, not forever, but it's right for you to sit out and listen and breathe in and get better. But for whatever reason, that's basically it. Now, I know it's a gross oversimplification. There's another massive category. It's the elephant in the room that does like large churches and it's single people. Ha <laughs> ha. I don't think I need to say anything about that at the 8 p.m., right? I think you know exactly what I mean. But as a general rule, here's my point. The vast majority of you prefer smaller churches. And guess what? That is okay. In fact, it's more than okay. So we, we wrestle with this. How do you reconcile the two? Like millions of people in the greater Portland area, hundreds of thousands in Portland alone, but it's really hard to keep a large church healthy. How do you reconcile the two? Now, we think the solution, or at least a solution, is church planning. Um, By the grace of God, we have planted four churches over the last four years. We are number two. Then we planted Sunset. Then we planted Emmaus a few weeks ago. That's not counting a number of churches, quite a few more, that we have... um, done work with as far as help or money or support or teaching or training or relationship or whatever it is, that's quite a bit more. And that's fantastic. Well done. That is absolutely amazing. And my favorite thing about church planting is watching people come alive. I was a part of a church plant when I was 17 years old. I was a junior in high school. It changed my life. And I love it, watching people who were not involved, maybe who were in the background, step up to the plate and own it, which is why we want to call you to church planting, all of you. Maybe you're thinking, dude, I am not a church planner. I'm a freshman at PSU. I'm a barista, or I work at Les Schwab. I mean, I'm not a church planner. Well, maybe you're not the church planter, as in the pastor type up on stage, but I would argue you actually are a 
church planter. You know that saying in every apple seed and orchard? I love that. I would argue in every follower of Jesus, a church. Now, here's the question. Um, If you want to be a part of a church plant and you're part of the city or wherever you feel God is stirring you up to, how? Well, um, four things. First off, get into a missional community if you're not already in one. If you are, keep up the good work. Secondly, own your part of the city. Love it, serve it, bless it, live there, do life there. And where we see a growing number of missional communities living out the gospel and taking that part of the city seriously, we, all I promise you is that we will think and pray about planning a church there. If you see, man, there, look at how many missional communities are in St. John's and they are owning it. Look at how many are in Vancouver. Look at how many are in Selwood. Look at, how, look at these people who take the gospel and the city seriously. We will do the same for you. Third, um, so start to dream about your neighborhood. Start to dream about your city. Start to dream about wherever you feel called to. Maybe it's not Portland at all. Maybe it's, who knows? Maybe it's Austin, Texas. I have no idea. Wherever it is. Austin is great, by the way. Um, I think there are already a bunch of great churches there. Though, moving on. Third, give. Um, as you may or may not know, 10% of the budget goes to church planning. So you give 10 bucks, a buck of that goes to Emmaus or another church that right now we give to. So continue in that. I'm really proud of you. You're growing in generosity. We're a young church. We don't have a ton of cash, but I'm proud of you. You're growing in that. Well done. Don't stop. And then fourth, and this one is by far the most important. If you hear nothing else, if you stop listening to me out of boredom five minutes ago and people think you're taking notes, really you're checking your email. This guy has so much great stuff to say, right? Whatever. (laughs) If you hear nothing else, listen to me right now. Pray. We are calling you to pray for more and more church plant. Pray your guts out. Pray for three things specifically. One, for people to own a city, to own a neighborhood, to live it out, to not just show up on the weekend, but go for it. Secondly, pray for a, a planter, for a man and his wife, who are willing to risk everything. It's hard work, it's exhausting, it's scary, it's fantastic to risk everything and go and plant a church and pray for that one, please. I mean, seriously, please pray for that. And third, pray for a place. I am sick and tired of seeing gorgeous churches turned into McMinimins. (laughs) Seriously, that's wrong. That should never, ever happen. Pray against that and pray for church plants all over this city and all over wherever you feel God is calling you to. Now, it goes without saying that all of that is based on God's grace and mercy more than anything on God's spirit, on a move of God, of God saying, yeah, I'm into Selwood. I'm into that part of the city. I'm with you. I'm into Lake Us. Let's go. I'm with you all the way. Now, if you are a pastor type interested in church planting, if you're here tonight, or uh, you're listening online to the podcast, then go ahead and email churchplanner at jesuschurch.org or go to the site at jesuschurch.org forward slash churchplanning. We are on the hunt for men who are in line with us theologically and philosophically with missional communities, gather, scatter, all of that, who would like to come here and embed um, in the city and with the team for a year or two and then go out and plant a church either here or wherever you feel God is calling you to. So if you're interested in that, feel free to contact us. But all of you, It's not the majority of you. All of you know that our dream for the future isn't of a church that gets larger and larger and larger, but it's a church that is scattered all over the city, if not all over this nation, if not all over the world. Now, that's the first thing we think it means. Secondly, what does this mean for for the church as a whole? Secondly, um, as we have been, are you with me, you alive? Another half an hour? Yeah, okay, no, I'm kidding. Stay with me, 10 minutes. As we have been planting churches over the last few years, we've been on this evolution from multi-site to a family of churches. We started with the language of one church in two locations, and then when we planted Sunset, one church in three locations. But we're growing in the conviction over the last year or two that you're not a location because churches don't have locations. Coffee shops have locations. Movie theaters have locations, not churches. You're not a location, you're not a campus, you're not a site, you are a people, plain and simple. And this city is small, but it's eclectic, which means the church, in my opinion, should look a little bit different in every part of the city. That's what it means to be a missionary or a missional church. You take on the look and feel of your culture. Jesus came to humanity as a giraffe. No, as a space alien. No, he came to humanity as a human. He came to Galilee as a Roman. 
No, he came to Galilee as a Galilean. That's exactly how it should be. As we plant more churches, God willing, as you pray and God says, yes, I'm into that, we don't want to become Starbucks. Now, here's the thing. The thing about Starbucks is that you get the exact same cup of coffee everywhere you go in the world. That's a good thing or a bad thing depending on your taste and where you live. If you live in Des Moines, it's fantastic. It's the best coffee in town. Right? I'm not a fan of Starbucks, no offense if you work there, but when I travel, if I'm in the Midwest or I'm on the East Coast or I'm in the UK or I'm in India where the coffee is horrific and I walk around a corner and there is the siren. I think, thank you, Jesus, for the Greek goddess from the Iliad or whatever that is from. And I walk in, and there's the green apron. There's the smell. Jazz is in the background. There's the barista with the tattoo and a nose ring. Oh, you go to the church. Hilarious. Wow, hi. Like, there you are, right? And I know exactly what I'm going to get, the exact same cup of bad, stale, cruddy coffee. But... If I'm in the UK, it's fantastic. Thank you, Jesus. But if you're in downtown Portland, I mean, why would you drink Starbucks? Seriously. You have Stumptown and Barista and Cova and Ristretto and Hart is two blocks down the street in a few weeks. It's going to open. I mean, seriously, you live in the best city for coffee in the world. Now, if you work at Starbucks and right now you're offended, you're thinking, I'm walking out right now after you're done so you don't make fun of me, but I'm walking out after that and I'm offended and I think you're a coffee snob. I just think you're a snob. I don't disagree with any of that. And (laughs) here's my point, all right? Here's my point. The thing about Starbucks is consistency. You know exactly what you are going to get every time. But the church is not Starbucks. It's not a product You can't just order a bunch of green aprons. (laughs) It's not a product. It's a people. And so, this is all review, by the way. (laughs) And so, a while ago, we stopped using the language of multi-site or one church in three locations, and we started using the language of a family of churches. Now, the next change that we want to make has to do with the name. We want not to rename the church, but listen carefully, to unname the church. Think of Babel, Genesis 11. So that we may make a what? Name for ourselves. Thousands of years later, not much has changed. We are in a culture that is obsessed with fame and celebrity status, in particular on the west coast of America, obsessed with it. And I'm sick and tired. I don't care what Katie Holmes is wearing to the grocery store. I don't care. But that is the cultural milieu that you and I were born into. And it's easy, over the top easy, for that to sink into the life of the church. And we've been wrestling with the name for a while now, right? We have this 90s, churchy, cheesy name. No offense. I had nothing to do with it. And as... As we plant churches, nobody's going to want to be called Solid Rock San Diego or whatever. Solid Rock, you know, it was Emmaus, a Jesus church in Raleigh, not Solid Rock. And I don't blame Dom. Well done, my friend. Nobody is going to want to go down that route. So we started talking about renaming the church, but it was weird. You know, should we call it this? Should we call it that? My vote was the church formerly known as Solid Rock. (laughs) That was my vote. I think it's Portland. It's, you know, whatever. Um, But nobody else was for that for whatever reason. So, but it was weird, okay? We're in conversations and it started to feel like we just wanted to sound cooler. It it started to feel like a rebranding or like a marketing promo. It started to feel like where in the world is Jesus in all of this? But then we started talking about unnaming the church. What if, hmm, interesting. Churches in the New Testament and early on for the first several hundred years of the church never had a name like Solid Rock or whatever. Um, In fact, there was a name. It was ecclesia in Greek or church in English plus the name of your city. So you were called the Church of God in Corinth or the Church of God in Philippi, the Church of God in Rome. That was it. Well, Well, what if... So we started to think, okay, what if instead of renaming we unnamed, what if we were just called a Jesus church or church and then each church was called by a geographical moniker for that part of the city? What if we were called downtown a Jesus church, or west side a Jesus church, or sunset a Jesus church? It's way less of a brand. It's no good for marketing at all. I think Jesus is really sad about that. 
It's less multi-site, but it's more family of churches. Think about it. My name is John Mark. My dad's name is Phil. Our last name is Comer. We have different first names and the same last name. That's what it means to be family. So going forward, it's official as of today. We have different first names as churches, but the same last name. It should take a few weeks to change out signage, and we're building a new website right now. That should take a few months, but it's official. Now, that said, here's the caveat and the disclaimer for all of us downtown. We actually are changing the name of downtown. Haha, <laughs> trick you there. To, not the church formerly known as Solid Rock, sadly, but to Bridgetown, which is kind of half of a shift. I mean, half of the word is the same, right? Downtown, Bridgetown, half of a change. To Bridgetown, and here's why. Um, Over the last year or two, we've realized as Jesus has been at work, we're three years into this, that this is a church not just for the downtown core, which is about a square mile, but is for all of Portland. Now by Portland, I don't mean greater Portland. This is not a church for Lake Oswego or Gresham. I mean the city of Portland, what I would call the urban core. But this is a church for all of us. If you live in Northeast, fantastic. If you live in the Pearl, great. If you live off 23rd or in Forest Park, welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're in Southeast, brew your own kombucha. We're pumped, all right? Well done. Wherever you're at, this is a church. Um, We are a church for the city of Portland. So we are going to pick a name that we think does a better job of capturing not just downtown, but the city of Portland as a whole. So if you're confused as heck right now, here's the deal. People ask you, where do you go to church? Here's what you say. All you have to say is Bridgetown Church. Or if you want to get fancy, then you can say Bridgetown, a Jesus church, which is part of a family of churches in the greater Portland area. (laughs) Boom. How does that sound? Right there. Okay. Now, a few questions that you may or not be thinking in the back of your head right now. One, are, are we breaking apart? What do you think? No, absolutely not. Are you kidding? Two, are we mad at each other? Or is each church like kind of anti whatever? No, not at all. In fact, our leadership honestly is more unified right now, I think, than it's ever been. And going on a decade, things are humming behind the scenes. Um, are we becoming a network like X29 or Calvary Chapel? Nope. We're one church, but we're also three. Family, in my mind and imagination, is by far the best analogy. Um, I'm not going anywhere. And if you're thinking, is this a big deal? Not really. And if you're thinking, why did you just waste 20 minutes of my life on it then? I, I don't know. I'm sorry. We just think it's a better way of capturing what God's already been up to the last few years and a better setup for the future. Now, as we move into the coming year, 2013-14, I could not be more excited. We just planted a church in Raleigh a few weeks ago. They're doing fantastic Um, The next one we have in the pipeline is in Scotland. More on that in the coming weeks. Yes, if those of you that are ready to transfer to university of whatever, um, get ready, all right? And uh, I could not be more excited. The last year or two were long and hard as we made the shift to missional communities and kind of readopt a gospel posture for the church as a whole. But I think we're getting over the hump and I'm more encouraged in the last month or two than I have been in years and years. But listen, listen to me. Stay with me for a minute or two more. All of this church vision is contingent on you and me making disciples. Because you are the church. Not this building as beautiful and historic as it is. Not the stage, not the paid staff, not a time slot on Sunday night. You are, and you know that, but I'm driving the point home. You are, and it's interesting, the command to make disciples is for all of us, not just for paid staff, not just for pastors, for all of us. Make, go, make disciples, wherever you live and call home, make disciples. It's interesting that the command is to make disciples, not to plant churches. Churches are what happen when disciples make more disciples. But you all know this is not an easy way to live. I wish Jesus would have just said, go to church every weekend and be good people in between. That would have been so much easier than go and make disciples. But Jesus' way has never been easy. Never. But it is good. As you all know, the best things in life are hard. And deep down, we don't want easy, right? We want good. We want to matter. Deep down, you want 
people that you love and know and care about to be changed and to come to know and love and serve and follow Jesus. You want that, and you want to be a part of it, I'm guessing. I mean, deep down, you want your job to be about more than a paycheck. You want chem class tomorrow to be about more than a degree. You want your life to matter forever for Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus is not giving you one more thing on top of your already busy, stressed out schedule. He's drawing on the deepest desires of your heart. He's drawing on what is deep down underneath all of the crud underneath all of busyness and life and your job and your stress and school and a family and your vocation and technology and media and your new iPhone with the fantastic upgrade and all of that and underneath what Jesus called worries and riches and pleasures underneath all of that if you can dig down through it all deep down this is what you want this is the desires of your heart. This is what's churning inside of you. That's what Jesus is drawing on to see people change. Now to end, listen to this passage from Acts. Or turn the page if you want. It's in the next chapter. This is the next glimpse that we get of the church right after they were scattered. And listen to it. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we invite you right now to dig deep through all the muck, all the stuff in our artery between you and our heart. Have your way, Jesus. Do your stuff by the Holy Spirit. We want to be a church marked by multiplication. We want disciples to make more disciples. We want missional communities to make more missional communities. We want churches to make more churches. But more than anything, we want to follow you, Jesus just for an hour and a half every weekend but all the time we love you Jesus we invite you we pray for your help we pray for your heart 